if you saw on the front of your bulletin, we work through James. We've been working through James for the last few weeks, and we come to this portion where we're actually going to split chapters in half a little bit, uh, kind of something a little bit different. But we're going to we're going to be reading through chapter three, starting in verse thirteen, and we're going to go through four twelve. Four twelve. And I've titled this, Two Ways to Live. Two Ways to Live. And if you know much about me, um, there's two things that I, I think I, I really enjoy. One is sports. And second is history. And many times, I've, I've probably started sermons here talking about a, a Christian in the past. And we're going to go back to that same setting to a man named C.T. Studd. Does anybody in here know the name C.T. Studd? Okay, we've got we a couple Maybe one? Okay, this is great. Well, C.T. Studd, he was born in England, a very wealthy home. His dad was a businessman. Studd grew up very privileged. His father came to Christ when Studd was a, a child, and he died. His father died when he was 19 years old. He wanted to make an impact for Christ and for his children's life. Studd came to Christ at age 18. He was an amazing cricket player. He went to college to play cricket there, but his faith did not take off very quickly when he came to conversion. He, he struggled with this desire for the world and for this desire for Jesus, but Stud's life would change when his brother got very, very ill, and he heard the preaching of a very famous 19th century preacher by the name of D.L. Moody. There, Stud gave his life to Christian service and to mission. He went on to China to be part of the Inland uh, group that was with Hudson Taylor. He was part of the Cambridge Seven that also offered their lives the Christian missionary service. At the age of 25, he gave the majority of his inheritance from his father's wealthy business to Christian mission and to send missionaries all over the world. Today, that total would be equivalent to about $4 million U.S. dollars. When he went to China, he had to go home because his health was failing. Comes back, he gets married. God, or he feels God calling him again. This time he goes to serve in India. For six years, he's sharing the gospel among the persecuted. He's pastoring a church there. Comes back to England because his health's failing again. And at all odds, the doctors say, you cannot leave. You you need to stay here. Financially, you have no money. Your health is failing. But he says, God is calling me to Central Africa. And if he is, I'm going. And he, and he goes. And for 21 years, he spends his life in the middle of Africa sharing Christ, raising up leaders all throughout the church there within his weakness and his shame. He had several heart attacks, losing almost all of his teeth. And at the end of his, end of his life, this is what he could say. He could say this. He could say that God called me to China, and I went despite utmost opposition from my loved ones. He said that I joyfully acted as Christ told the rich young man to act. And three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, went alone on the Bibby liner in 1910, gave up my life for this work, which was to be, hence, not for the sedan only, but for the unevangelized world. My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me work to do, I have not refused it. Stud lived his life faithfully. He did not waver in what the Lord had called him to do. 
As a young, successful age, and a young, successful man, he had a choice to make early on. Do I live my life for the pursuits of the world, or do I live my life in the pursuits of Christ? Two ways to live, and he chose Jesus. His probably best quote is this, and some of you might know this one. He says this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And this brings us to our text here this morning. And Stud's story sets the scene for today in James chapter 3. Two ways to live. Two ways to live, and how you live defines the genuineness of your faith. I've got this broken down in three parts, how I see this passage working. It's two ways to live regarding wisdom. Chapter 13, or chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Then two ways to live regarding friendship. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And then two ways to live regarding speech. 11 through verse 12. Follow along with me as we start in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of genuineness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels that causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever asks and wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says, He who yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he makes more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are now, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word that you have for us. God, shepherd our hearts here this morning. Help us to be faithful. Help our our faith in you to be genuine. 
We trust you with these things, and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this title, it feels very, it's, it, it is very applicable. It feels very topical, uh, even in the title. But, but, but James, is, as we've talked about, it's one of those books that is very, it is a very applicable book. Discuss this each week. Application is all throughout the book of James, and this is a good thing for us. Um, and it can, make, it can make preaching very easy, but at the same time, it can also make it very difficult. And the three things that we are going to talk about today seem very elementary on the surface when it comes to living a life faithful to Christ, because we know that all wisdom does come from above. We know that friendship with the world is very damaging, and we learn from a very young, young age that, uh, from a morality standpoint, um, that we need to be kind in our speech, Right? These are not crazy things for us to think through. However, as we see these things, there are areas of growth that need to take place. And if we do not think that we need to grow in these areas, there's this thing called pride. And we might even get to that today as well. But in this first section, two ways to live regarding wisdom, verses 13 through 18. James starts here with a question, and his question is, who is wise and understanding among you? His answer, the man who shows meekness and his wisdom. Meekness is the Greek word preutes, preutes, and it means mildness, it means gentleness, it means kindness, it means meekness. The opposite of meekness is arrogance, haughtiness, pride, selfishness. Selfless ambition right there in the next verse. It is the opposite of meekness. And James says that this is not biblical wisdom. He said this is earthly wisdom. So two sources of wisdom in the verses that leads to two ways of living. We have earthly wisdom and we have godly wisdom. And James is helping us see both of these things and urging us away from earthly wisdom. And what, look, at what, look at what James says here about earthly wisdom in verse 15. He says, it's unspiritual. unspiritual. It's even demonic. He's saying this comes from hell. These are bold, bold words from James. To say it is demonic, essentially, it says it's coming from hell. It's the opposite of who God is. Notice, too, going back to verse 14, where does this come from? Verse 14, it says it comes from the heart. Here's what John MacArthur has to say about this. I thought it was very helpful. He says this. He says, motivation is always determined by the heart, in the heart. It's where both unbelief and belief, sin and righteousness originate. Remember what Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? He says, oh, foolish men, slow to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch if you believe with all your hearts, you may be saved. Paul declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. The Lord also made clear that out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. It is for that reason that Solomon warned he warned in Proverbs 4, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart. The heart leads to verse 16. It leads to jealousy, selfish ambition that leads to disorder, and every vile practice. 
Do we see the severity when our wisdom comes from the world? It is ugly. It is deceptive. It is at odds with the Lord. But this is the natural tendency of man, isn't it? Our natural tendency is not wisdom from above. It is earthly wisdom. This is what man tends to move towards. I think this is why false teaching is so easily caught on to. Whether it's in the name of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, Mormonism, Hinduism, these are man-made thoughts, man-made ideas. They're man-made religions. And our inclination is to be drawn towards man. The end of verse 14 says that earthly wisdom is false to the truth. We can run towards the wisdom of the world and leave behind the only truth that we have that is found in God's word. However, when it comes to the wisdom that is from above, look at verse 17. Wisdom from above, it is pure, it is peaceful, it is gentle, it is open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Would you look at these things and would we admonish the beauty that comes from godly wisdom? Wisdom that does not come from hell, but that comes from heaven. May we desire the wisdom from the Lord and may that be the place that we run to. And something that I found very interesting with, these, with this list of things that, Paul, or that, that James shares with us is the Beatitudes. If you look at the Beatitudes and the, and, and, and the heart of, of wisdom... The Beatitudes, pure, the pure in heart are blessed for they will see God. You look at peace-loving, the peacemakers are blessed before, for they will be called sons of God. Look at gentle, the gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. Open to reason, the poor in spirit are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Full of mercy, the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy and full of good fruits, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. Don't you love when the Bible comes alive in such a way and they help interpret themselves? Go back to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mound and find these same words found here in James. And this heavenly wisdom, it leads to peace in verse 18. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if I see a lot of peace in the world, but even specifically in evangelicalism in the 21st century, it feels like there is little peace. Maybe I see it more than some of you see it, because I'm in it kind of day in and, and day out, but I talk to pastors in, in the denomination that we're a part of and other denominations as well, and there's people all over the board on theological issues, and most, most, quite honestly, most of them are not necessarily first-tier issues, but they're issues, and they're, they're not talking necessarily about conservatism. They're not talking about uh, you know, inerrancy of the Bible or, or, or things with the Trinity that have to do with the Trinity, per se, but they're talking about things regarding eschatology, talking about things like end times talking about ecclesiology, how do we do church? We're talking about missiology, how are we reaching the lost? These are where these fractions are coming. And it feels like if you cannot agree on these things 
fully with these issues, then people can totally write you off. They don't want to associate with you anymore because you do not see things the way that I see them. And maybe I'm reading too much into this. And hear me out. Hear me out. I struggle with these things too. I've sh- I think I have strong convictions on some things. I'm strong convictions on, on, on the order of the church, strong convictions on what we sing and how we sing songs in the church. I'm very convinced, or very convinced of the ordinary means of grace. I'm very convinced of the regulative principle of how we do church. And I'm asking myself these same questions that are found here when it comes to wisdom. Am I gentle? Are my motives pure when digging deeper in differences and opinions of style and preference? Am I open to reason? Have your convictions. Stand upon those things. Be willing to listen to people. Social media behind a computer screen is not the best place to have theological debates. I'm fully convinced of that at this point. Sit down with the person if you can and hear their differences graciously. You do not have to change your mind, but listen humbly and listen. Do not worry what the person or what you are going to say next as you are listening to the person, because when you do that, you are not listening. You are thinking about what you are going to say next. And Lord, help me to see this in my own life. And it's not just theological debates, right? This is life. It's life with coworkers, it's life with friends, it's life with family members, it's spouses, it's family, it's children. You're going to have differences in this world. You're going to have conflict. And a lot of the time it happens with the people that you love the most. But friends, when conflict comes, let us seek godly wisdom. Help us to run to the Lord and not to the world because, go back to verse 18, it leads to peace. Isaiah 32, 17 says this, And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. Righteousness and peace, they go together, and may we seek those things. All right, chapter 4, two ways to live regarding friendship. So where do we get this idea of friendship? Where does, where does this come from? comes from verse 4. So look at verse 4. Okay, this really sets the tone for the issue at hand in chapter 4 here. But the thing that sets this in motion has to go back to where they are getting their wisdom and where they are getting, uh, where, where, their, where their wisdom is leading to. So look at, look at verse 1. So we see quarrels and fights. Quarrels and fights. And look at what James does here. He sandwiches quarrels and fights in verses 1 and 2, okay, with uh, this, this um, uh, sorry, I'm trying to find it here. Um, yeah, so, so it's, it's fancy terminology is what I'm trying to say. So there's a chiasm that comes here, all right? It's, it's a literary term, okay? So we have quarrels and fights. And verse, verse 1 starts with quarrels and fights. Verse 2, kind of in the middle, quarrels and fights. But in the middle, we have this, this idea of hatred and killing and destroying and just terrible things that are taking place. And James is trying to show a point here with these quarrels and fights and the things that are taking place here with their passions and their desires that ultimately lead to murder. They had hatred. They had hatred in their heart towards someone. They were killing them. They weren't committing a a, 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 a first-degree murder, but Jesus 
we know, raises the standards. And the Sermon of the Mount, going back to that once again, on if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. And friends, have you ever been in a church where you or someone within the church used their passions and desires wrongly? Where they wanted the church to be something that it did not have, and they went and they went on despising people. They had differing views on opinions, on how something should be done. So you, maybe you, or maybe they, they started quarrels and they started fights within the church. They were killing the church. They were coveting because the communion was not done the way they thought it should be. The church and the people within the church, they can be some of the kindest people you've ever met. But I've also seen that they can be some of the Fortunately, some of the meanest people. Some of you, unfortunately, have experienced that. I've heard stories that I do and will not repeat that pastors have told me about terrible things that have happened within their church, whether while they were there, before they got there, or after they got there. Church splits, fear, or uh, member fear mongering, churches closing, splits, many times over small issues that had to do with preference or the legacy of the church or the congregation. And quite honestly, none of them were biblical or theological issues. And I've gotten to do work with churches and church revitalization and church replanting here in Ohio, um, working with churches that are struggling. How do we help churches? Some research said that 80% of churches in America are declining. When you go into these churches, you have people there that have spent decades, time, and resources, and energy, and they just want to go back to the good old days. They do not want to see change take place, and they won't let a pastor come in and help them and, and make the changes. And, and if you want to talk about a fight in a church, you talk about making changes to a church that hasn't seen changes or closing down their church of 10 people to try to start a new church within that, that building. And I've heard this time and time again, the line that goes, you're going to have to see a couple funerals take place before you're able to see any change within that church. Essentially meaning people are holding so strongly on their tradi traditions and their legacy and preferences that they won't allow things to change, and they are happy to just let the church die before someone can come in and re try to revitalize it. They have taken the church and they've made it theirs and essentially their desires and their passions have won out. And thousands of churches around America today are dying and are closing. And this is one of the leading causes of that. But it goes back to human selfishness in verse 3. You have not because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your own passions. And the Bible calls that adultery. Adultery called it adultery. Why? Because you've made friends with the world and your heart and you've cheated on God. Adultery is not just a sin committed against someone else you're not married to. It's ultimately a sin against a holy, just, righteous God who wants the best for you. And our desires and our passions and our lust for the world drive us to be friends with the world and enemies of God. Now, I do not believe, I do not believe that a, a, a solid, 
Bible-believing Christian would desire something like that. You don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be enemies with God today? Right? That's not something you're saying or something you're asking. Right? But the good news is that in our selfishness and in our pride and in our desires and our passion, God gives the sinner grace. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Praise God for this. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace and humility goes a long ways when it comes to friendship with the world and friendships and relationship with God. May God's grace surround us in such a way that our only response back to him is humility, to be humbled towards him, humility towards him and humility towards other. And that humility towards God spur out to those around us. So much so that we will look at, look at, look at verse 7, that we would submit ourselves to God. We would resist the devil and he will flee from you. But what exactly does that mean? To submit, it's, it's a military turn to rank under, okay? So a person is to rank under the Lord when you submit to him and you resist the old Lord, the devil. You're changing, you're changing who you submit under. It's the changing of, of who lords over you. Is it the enemy or is it God? And for people today, you are either under the lordship of Jesus Christ or you are under the lordship of Satan. And James is saying, you submit to Christ, and so you now stand opposed to Satan, your former Lord. And this lordship, what it does is it leads you to draw closer to the Lord. And when you do that, he does not step away and back up. He, he comes closer to you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God, when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. It is God's sufficiency and our responsibility. God's grace is sufficient and it saves us, but it gives us the, a desire to go to him and draw near to us. And he draws near to us. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It relates so well to so humble, humble yourselves, and he will exalt you. Resist friendships with the world and the lies that it has to offer. Resist quarrels that lead to disunity and destruction. Attempt to approach all things in life in a humble way and allow the grace of God to overwhelm you in such a way that your only response back to him is humility, and he will fill you with that. This leads us to our last point two ways to live regarding speech. If you were here with us last week, Rob spoke on the taming of the tongue. Okay, so we're, 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 he's kind of ending this section here. He starts with the, the taming of the tongue, and now he's saying, he's talking about speech. Okay, it, it, it comes together. It flows together well. But when you are humbled before the Lord, it affects the way that you speak to someone or about someone. So notice in, in these two verses how the word speaking or speech is used three times. But really, in these two verses, what, what, what he's getting to 
is this idea of judge or judges because it's used six times. So he's saying speaking and speech leads to judgings in just these two verses here. But judges, that word, I think sometimes we, we, we misinterpret. What, what does it mean to, to, to judge someone? Typically, we think to, to evaluate, right? We're evaluating something. But, but from, a, from biblical terms, the, best, the better way probably to say this is to condemn. To judge means to condemn. And our speech to someone or about someone, can sometimes, it can cast judgment or condemnation on that person. That's a dangerous place to be. So I think it's important that we define the terms here because when I think of the word judging, I, think, I don't think condemnation. I think evaluation. But that's why James starts out by saying, do not speak evil against one another because when you do, you are pronouncing judgment upon that person. You're condemning that person. When you're belittling them, you're belittling that person. Essentially, you're putting yourselves in the seat of God. And you're putting yourself above the law of God. Dangerous place to be. So this is worldly speech, and it dishonors God. How? Because when you speak evil against God's law itself, you make, uh, you make the standards of what God has already said in his law. Do we see the dangers of this? You look at the law that God has given, and you're essentially saying, I know better than what God knows. I know how to rightly judge this person better than the creator of not just us and the world, but, but, but God himself. You're making your own rules and you're stacking everyone else against what you think is right. And you've replaced God's law by your law. You dishonor the Lord first and foremost and you dishonor your, your neighbor. How could an imperfect person set the tone to morality and to what evilness is in their own evilness? It seems very backwards. It's called hypocrisy, essentially. But you go back once again to the Sermon on the Mound. You guys know where I'm going. Matthew chapter 7. It says, Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you pronounce will be judged. In the measure, and with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. Do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when, the, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye. You will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The good news is there's another way to allow the Lord to judge. In verse 12, it says, once again, it says, submit to Christ. Submit to Christ. Allow him to lead and set the pace of the law and what it is. Come under his law and under his rule. May we honor the Lord. And when we do so, we show reverence in saying that, God, you know so much better than I do myself. And look what he's able to do with that when he is judge. He is able to save and to destroy. We can't do that. Only God can forgive in such a way that can save a sinner. A sinner cannot save himself. It is by the grace of God alone. Only he can destroy the person that, cannot, or that does not repent. 
And that word destroy is not annihilationism, but more eternal destruction in hell away from God. For some of us, this is a hard reality to, to grasp that some will be saved and some will be sent to hell. Some of you in this room maybe do not even have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I plead with you that God's judgment is the only one that matters. It's the only one that matters. And how you are judged is not by what you have done, but whether you have trusted in Jesus and what he has done for you. Because when God looks upon a person, he looks upon your record or he looks upon Christ's record. And your record is not good when he judges you. It is very, very bad. But when, he, when, you, when you take upon Christ, he looks at Jesus' record, spotless, clean. I urge you, if you do not know that, to trust Jesus, trust Christ. Take upon his perfect record. And when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your sin. He looks at Jesus' righteousness for you to be in right relationship with him. Believers in the room, I urge you, because I thought about this myself, think about how you talk about one another, either to their face or when they are not present. Think about who you are talking to or who you are even gossiping about. Do you want to know a fast way to kill community in a church? Gossiping. Slander, speaking evil against someone else within the church. It kills because it's worldly. It's evil. And it's putting you above the Lord's sovereign law. So be careful. I encourage some of us, um, if you see this even going on, talk to that individual. Say, be careful what you say. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his, um, one of his classics on the book Life Together, he says this. He says, talking about others in secret is not allowed even under the pretense of help and goodwill, for it is precisely in this guise that the spirit of hatred between believers always creeps in. You've been there in those conversations where they say, ah, oh, man, I really love that guy, but... And then you sandwich a, a criticism in there. But I really love that guy, right? This is what Bonhoeffer is talking about. I'm not saying that you can't talk about anybody that's not in the room with you or it, whatever. But maybe this is something to think about in your own life. If they are not present, I'm not going to speak about them. But if they are, then I feel like I need it. Maybe that's something we need to practice. I'm not saying it has to happen or needs to happen, but just something to think about. Because Bonhoeffer was a firm believer, if you wanted to talk about someone, they needed to be in the room, whether it was good or whether it was bad. And I will close with this, friends. Let us believe in the gospel's sufficiency for our lives in regards to wisdom, in regards to friendship, in regards to speech. May we focus our efforts towards godly living and not worldly living. May the fruit, of our, our, the fruit of our lives be evident in a lost world and also within the church. And may we ask for the Lord's grace in the areas that we need, that we strive together to live our lives that 
honors Christ and glorifies him. Martin Lord Jones once said, the Christian sits loosely to this world and its affairs. Why? Because he belongs to another kingdom. Christian in the room, you belong to another kingdom and it's not this world. So hold on loosely to what it offers and hold on tightly to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it teaches us, how it edifies us. God, help us to walk away today encouraged by the grace that you show, a center that is found in you. Help us to walk away encouraged that you are good and that you are faithful even when we are not. God, this is not about legalism. We don't want this to be legalism. Let us to rest in Jesus knowing that he is sufficient and that through his sufficiency and through his grace, we could be molded and shaped more into the image of Jesus. Help us, help us to do that faithfully and to be so grateful that you have saved us. Help us to never get over being saved, God. We love you. We praise on Jesus' name. Amen.